Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We have essentially the same text we had last Sunday. If you remember correctly, we looked at verses 1 through 5 only. So I'd like to include those verses as we finish uh, this portion of the chapter this morning, verses 1 through 18. Remember last week, we looked at, in these five verses, Paul's anguish over the lost condition of his fellow Jews. And, in addition to that, his desire to take their place. And we also saw that Paul understood that Christ was the fulfillment of all God's covenants, all God's promises throughout the ages in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. We saw that Paul ends this section in verses 4 and 5 with a list of the numerous advantages that the Jews enjoyed. Paul's list of advantages begs the question, why did God's people, his chosen people, the Jews, largely fail to embrace Jesus Christ as God's Messiah? In other words, with so many advantages, how in the world could the Jews largely, not all of them, but most of them, reject God's appointed king and Savior. And so Paul now addresses himself to this mystery, beginning in verse 6. And he asks himself, or an imaginary debate opponent, two questions. Actually, a series of questions, but we're only going to look at two this morning. And these two are the questions. Number one, did God fail to keep his word? Did God fail to keep his word in verses 6 through 13. And then secondly, is God unjust? Is there injustice with Almighty God? And Paul's going to probe that in verses 14 through 18. And so that'll be our outline this morning. Before we begin, let's ask the Lord to bless our time and study together in prayer. Lord, we pray now that you with your word, would feed your sheep. That, Lord, you would work through the pastor and the foolishness of the message preached so that we all, pastor and people alike, might feast on the living Christ as we look to your word and seek to submit to it and obey it and to find it in our hearts on a regular basis. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. And we make our prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. If I had a, a thesis statement for the message this morning, it would be this. God's word never fails as he works out his sovereign and just purposes in the world and in your life. God's word never fails as he works out his sovereign and just purposes in the world and in your life. Now, in order to refute any detractors, Paul asks in a certain way these two questions. Number one, did God fail to keep his word? In other words, 
how can we explain Jewish unbelief? How can we explain that the bulk of the Jews rejected Jesus as the Christ? Well, when we look at verse 6, Paul says, But it's not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, the Word of God never fails. We know from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. And Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 23, says, You have been born again, those of us who are believers. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. So if God's Word never fails, then what's wrong? What's going on? How can we explain Jewish apostasy and the unwillingness to embrace Christ? Well, we know the Word of God has not failed, but that Israel throughout the centuries failed on its own. They failed to hear God's Word. They failed to obey God's Word and submit to it. And by doing that, they failed to submit to God Himself. And so Israel's failure to believe was not the fault of God or His Word. Now you'll notice whenever we look at Scripture, we need to be an, or exercise some precision. Look what Paul says in verse 6b, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That is, there has always been two Israels when you look at Scripture. We have, first of all, Abraham's physical descendants. If you're a physical descendant of Abraham, then that considers you a Jew. You're part of Israel, according to the flesh. But then there is Abraham's spiritual descendants. And Paul calls these children of promise. So not all Israel is what we would say true Israel. In fact, Paul taught this in Romans chapter 2, if you remember way back when we started this series. He spoke of being a Jew outwardly with physical circumcision, but not inwardly. It is possible to have circumcision outwardly, but not be circumcised spiritually in the heart. That is, not to have a heart change by God's Spirit. And that's what makes what Paul calls a true Israelite. Now he goes on here to refer to two well-known Old Testament situations to illustrate his point. The first concerns Abraham's family. Just as not all who are descendants from Israel are true Israelites, so not all who are descended from Abraham are Abraham's true spiritual offspring. Notice verse 7. On the contrary, as Scripture says, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be named. The inference is not through Abraham's son Ishmael. You remember Abraham had two sons, Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah. So who are God's true children? Paul says they're the ones according to the promised. Who can be designated at Abraham's true offspring? Only those who are according to God's promise. Look at verse 8. It's not the natural children, but the children of promise who were born due to God's promise. And you have the wording of the promise in verse 9. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And so God begins to lay the groundwork for people of his promise, people who are going to be called spiritually, people who are going to respond from the heart. And not only amongst the Jews, but we'll see years later amongst Jew and Gentile with the coming of Christ and the new covenant. So first of all, it concerns Abraham as an illustration. And then notice, secondly, uh, the second concerns Isaac's family. 
Paul turns for his second illustration to Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Paul shows that just as God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, Ishmael's not even named, but the inference is clear, to be the recipients of his promise, so also he chose Jacob and not Esau. In fact, it's even more apparent here in this example that God's decision had nothing whatsoever to do with any eligibility of the boys. There was nothing to distinguish them from one another. In other words, we don't read that one was better than the other. In fact, quite the contrary. Verse 10, Paul emphasizes that Isaac and Ishmael had different mothers, but Jacob and Esau had the same mother. And, of course, that was Rebekah. In verse 11, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, God made his decision and revealed it to their mother. And this was deliberate so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. That is to say, his eternal purpose, which operates according to his election. Now, what God's purpose in election means is clear. It's that God's choice of Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau, does not originate in them or any works that they may have done, but in the mind and the will of God, of him who calls, according to the text. Now, to clinch this, you look at verses 12 and 13. Paul quotes two scriptures referring to Jacob and Esau. The first declares that the older will serve the younger. That's taken from Genesis 25 verse 23, putting Jacob above Esau. The second scripture says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that is from Malachi chapter 1. Now that's shocking words, isn't it? You don't like to read in the Bible that God hates anybody. But the antithesis there is to be understood as a Hebrew idiom for preference. Now Jesus himself gives us the interpretive clue According to Luke 14, 26, Jesus said we cannot be his disciples unless we hate father, mother, sister, brother, family members. But in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, 37, it says we are forbidden to love family members more than Jesus Christ. And so you see what Paul is saying. It's a Hebrew idiom to demonstrate the gulf between those two things, Jacob and Esau. I prefer Jacob over Esau. And he wants to present it in strong terms, just like he says of Jesus in the New Testament, you've got to love me more, so much more that it would appear that the difference is love and hate. And so we're not seeing God here put his seal of hatred upon someone. It's just an idiom to emphasize the difference. And so Paul clarifies that God put Jacob above Esau just as he put Isaac above Ishmael. And both stories illustrate the same fundamental truth, God's purposes according to election. Now, Paul's conclusion is that God's promise did not fail, but it was fulfilled only in the Israel within Israel, the spiritual Israel, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their lineage. Okay, so God made a choice. He has the right to do that as the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so Paul asks a second question, a follow-up question, in verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Is not God's purpose, according to his choice, intrinsically unjust? 
I mean, to choose some for salvation and pass by others looks like a breach of justice, doesn't it? At least according to human standards. What then shall we say, Paul says, is God unjust? And immediately in verse 14, he says, not at all. May it never be in the strongest of terms. Now, he then goes on to explain, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, verse 15, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, I want you to note well the positive tone and terminology of these verses. Paul defends God's justice by proclaiming his mercy. Perhaps that sounds odd or strange or illogical, but it's really not. Paul's reply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy, compassion. Why is that? Well, verse 16, because as this verse makes clear, salvation does not depend on man's desire or effort. Look at verse 16. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God's mercy and compassion are not conditioned by human performance. That's very important to hear. That's something that we as Christians ought to communicate to the world as well. Because I think the majority of the world would say that, that if there is a God, he must look at our performance before he demonstrates mercy and kindness and compassion. That's just not the case. The choice to show mercy and compassion is exclusively God's. And he shows his abundant favor to whomever he chooses for his purposes and his glory. Paul sees these divine words to Moses in verse 15 and to Pharaoh in verse 17, both recorded in Exodus as complementary sums and, and sums them up in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy the message to Moses, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, the message to Pharaoh. It's important here, uh, something to note, that Scripture is clear that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself. You remember all those passages that Randy read a little while ago. There are ten passages to be exact. In the first four of them, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh got stubborn and he would not listen to God. Pharaoh refused to humble himself before the triune God. And then in the latter six passages, five out of those six, I believe it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it's important to see the order. Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then God began to give him over to that hard heart. That's how we are to understand it. In fact, we see the same combination of human obstinacy and divine judgment in the hardening of the heart in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah said, Lord, I'll go here and my send me. Great missionary chapter in the Old Testament. And he says, what shall I say? And he says, go on and make the, make the heart of this people calloused. In other words, as you give them my word and my direction, what's going to happen is their heart is going to get harder and harder and harder. And we see that in ancient Israel. God's people got obstinate and hardened, 
and they went far away from the Lord, and the Lord brought discipline. But many were destroyed. It happened in the desert. And so God is not unjust. In fact, the same combination of human and obstinacy and divine judgment is spoken of by Jesus and Paul and applied to their ministry. And so God is not unjust. The fact is, all human beings are sinful and guilty in God's sight. And nobody deserves to be saved. Paul made that clear in chapter 3, verses 9 and 19. If God hardens some, he is not being just, or not being unjust, for that is what sin deserves. If he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he deals with them with mercy. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when you look at the God of the Bible, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. God doesn't owe us anything. We deserve nothing at the hand of God but judgment as a result of our sins. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in either case, God is not unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. And this antinomy continues a mystery or contains a mystery in that our our present knowledge cannot solve. But it is consistent with Scripture and history and experience. This is a heavy subject. It really is. You know, Peter spoke of the Apostle Paul in his second letter and he said some things that Paul says are hard to understand in other words they're more challenging they're filled with more mystery they're not as just black and white there's something there that goes beyond human comprehension and whenever we think about God's sovereignty not just in human affairs in general but over human hearts it's an awesome thing as Westminster Confession of Faith says we need to approach it with great care so that people understand so that we understand And we cut the word of God rightly. We divide it straight so that we understand what the Lord is teaching. And so I'd like to apply this passage for the remaining time that we have. I want to give you three things, first of all, to remember. Three things to remember. Number one, many mysteries surround the doctrine of election. And so humility is essential. Whenever we look at this, Whenever we study this doctrine, we don't need to be consumed with it, but we don't need to ignore it either. And that's why the, the Bible says, preach and teach the whole counsel of God. There needs to be humility. When you see these hearts being hardened, I want to challenge you at that point. If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, that would give you a sense of fear. I don't want my heart to be hardened. If you're truly a believer in Christ, your heart's not going to be hardened. But if you play with sin and you kind of test the waters of going against the Lord, you may want to ask yourself the question, am I truly regenerate? I mean, hearts get hard. I've known people like that in 30 years of ministry. One day, they're serving the Lord. They're uh, zealous. I had an elder that worked with me in New Orleans when I was planning a church. He was instrumental in helping get the church started. And he'd been an elder for years. But slowly but surely, I saw some unusual behavior. And uh, he was kind of dragging his feet here and there, and I saw some difficulties with his wife. And finally, it came out that he had had an affair. 
And uh, I realized why he was so miserable and making me miserable and trying to plant the church. There was something rotten in the well. You could profess faith in Christ. You can have all the markings of God's covenant. But if your heart has not been touched and changed and you don't see your need for Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter all the lingo and all the other baggage that's there. The Bible makes it clear that you may not be in. Don't let your heart get hard. Paul's not teaching anything here that he hasn't already taught. Romans 8, 28 through 30. You remember when we studied that passage. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why do people have a hard time with this doctrine? I think D. James Kennedy summed it up best. It is the most God-glorifying and honoring and the most man-humbling doctrine in the Bible. We have to allow God to be God. We allow God to be whatever he wants to be, uh, but when we start talking about sovereignty over all things and all people and even our own hearts, that's a scary thing. That's where the rubber meets the road if we're going to say, I believe in the God of the Bible, that he is all-powerful and in control. And so many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and that calls for humility and careful study of what the Word says. Now, secondly, election is not just a Pauline doctrine. It was also taught by Jesus himself. Jesus said on one occasion, I know those whom I have chosen. And in another place, he says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. So it's not just a Paul thing. Jesus taught it himself. And then thirdly, election is an essential foundation of Christian worship both now and in eternity. The essence of worship is, as the Scripture says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. And if we were responsible for our salvation, all of it or part of it, then we should be singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But that would be absurd. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping Him. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely by His grace, His will, His initiative, His wisdom, and His power. Why is the doctrine of election so important? It gives the basis, the foundation for Christian worship, both now and in eternity. It allows us to sit back and say, according to the Scripture, this God is the true and living God. He's not a God of my imagination. We're a God made up by the culture. He is the true and living God who has revealed himself in the person and work of Christ. Now let me give you two practical applications as we close. God's sovereignty is not just a doctrine. It goes before you and it comes behind you in your life. We've already seen that God is sovereign in redemption or salvation, that he calls people out that he makes a choice. We don't know all the reasons why. There have been many, many people in my life that I've pointed to and said, that person is a much better Christian than me in terms of their life. Or that person has not a greater Christian, but that person has a lifestyle that's more consistent with a Christian than mine is. But then I realize all the more the grace of God that he called me and opened my heart and opened my eyes and that he's still doing a work in me. Because it's not based on how good somebody is, what kind of a lifestyle they live. 
It's based on full supporting commitment to Christ, yielding to him. But what I want you to remember is that God's sovereignty includes your creation. It's not just sovereign and salvation. He was sovereign with you before you were born. He created you for his purpose and glory. Jeremiah 1 says, God speaking to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I have consecrated you and called you and appointed you as a prophet. That's how specific and particular God's choice, God's love was in the life of Jeremiah. And the same is true of every one of us. I was reading in a publication just the other day. Did you know there are 150,000 different kinds of flies? <laughs> Students of house flies tell us that there are 150,000 different flies. Now, imagine that. Different species, different names, 150,000. But God created every single one of them for his purposes, to balance out ecology. But when it comes to you, he only made one of you. Every one of us has a thumbprint that is extremely specific. And God created you. He made you for his glory, for his purposes. Now, we live in a culture now that would basically say, No, God, I know better. I know better. What if our culture could get hold of this truth? There would not be so much confusion about my significance, my purpose, my gender. So much confusion. And it all stems from saying to God, no, no, I've got a better idea. I've got a better plan. But God made you. And that's what makes you so special. You're made in his image. And when you submit to his word and realize this is the true and living God, I'm not going to say no to him. I'm not going to make a God of myself, which is what Adam and Eve essentially did in the garden then you are moving closer into the light to Jesus Christ. Remember that God's sovereignty includes your creation. And remember that God's sovereignty presides over your situation. If God exercises his sovereignty in my creation and redemption, then he most certainly does the same in all the situations and circumstances of my life. I mean, consider the examples in the Bible. Look at Job. Nobody needed a therapist more than Job. <laughs> he lost his family members. He lost his farm. He lost his money. He lost his health. And his wife and his friends didn't offer any assistance. He lost everything. But in the end of the book, he had a much bigger picture of the greatness of his God. God sovereignly worked in his life. Consider Joseph. I mean, this guy was from a dysfunctional home where dad had two wives, 
and basically two concubines, four women. There was incest. One of his brothers slept with one of the maids of Jacob. Finally, Joseph was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused and of rape by Potiphar's wife. He was wrongly convicted, and he was incarcerated for two long years. No one aside from Job needed a therapist more or had more reasons to be bitter and angry than Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what Joseph said in the end. You meant it for evil, but I am able to look above you to my creator, my redeemer, my God, and realize that he is in control of all these things and that he has divine purposes I'm not aware of. But Joseph became aware of them because Pharaoh appointed him to feed everyone in a time of famine. And many, many, many lives were saved as a result of God's sovereign behavior in his life. But you know, sadly, many go through life angry and bitter at God and parents because of some tragic circumstances in life. I have a family member who attended a church and was abused by, sexually abused by his priest. And to this day now, in his 70s, he says, no, no to God, no to the gospel. You see how something like that can condition and control your entire life? It's tragic. But when you put on the lens of sacred scripture and you realize that God is even over this person, the person who abused me, the person who hurt me, I don't have to go through life anymore making excuses, and I don't have to go through life being bitter and angry. I can lay it aside because the Spirit of God According to Paul in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. You realize what that means? Paul said in another place, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. You cannot do that on your own. There's some people that are so scarred by life, it's impossible to put those things behind you. But when the grace of God touches your heart and Christ enters your life, then it becomes possible. That's why God's word says, cease striving and know that I'm God. You can bring all of your pain and difficulty, all your confusion, all your insecurities and your hurts to Jesus. And that's why he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened by carrying this stuff, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Interact with me. Stop striving. Or as he said to Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. So don't go through life kicking and screaming, trying to get justice. Submit to me and see my hand in your life. If you haven't submitted your life to Jesus Christ by faith, I invite you to do that. Pray that God's Spirit is opening your heart and speaking to you. And if you have, then continue to persevere and take heart in this doctrine of God's sovereignty. May it spur us on to greater worship and a greater burden for the lost that we might share with them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is eternal and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. 
And you're pleased to use the foolishness of the message preached to invade hearts. And I pray, Lord, this morning, as imperfect as a message can be, that you would use your word in all of our lives and that you would work according to your good and pleasing and perfect will and pleasure. Lord, do these things, and that's enough. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do in our hearts and lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.